Hi. Two small pieces of brush to clear before we start down this episode's path. Number one, this is part two of a two-part conversation, and we pretty much jump in right in the middle of it. You don't need to listen to part one to enjoy this episode, but if you can, I recommend it. It's the context in which the conversation took place, and there are some very minor references of that first part here. But it's nothing critical. Number two, in the middle of the episode, there are some historical claims made right around when we discussed the importance of checking sources, and it made me think it'd be fun and valuable to do a little skeptical analysis on those claims. So I tacked my attempt at just that onto the end of this recording for anyone interested. I'm more than open to hearing any counterpoints. But the casual listener can just proceed as normal from here. Okay, onto the episode. Humans are most alive when they light up from their passions. Curious to learn who will be sparking us today? Welcome to where we're most alive right now. In 1675, Isaac Newton, one of the most influential mathematicians and scientists of all time, famously stated, If I have seen further, it is only by standing on the shoulders of giants. Today, over 300 more years of giants prop up the perch from which we're spoiled enough to see the world. If we gaze over this landscape, we realize that what our species has been able to discover is nothing short of intoxicating, and the mysteries that still lie beyond the limits of these discoveries are out of this world, as we know it. For now. For this intoxication, Mark Manley is my favorite bartender, serving up cocktail after cocktail of what leaves him in awe. If I ever thought science or history were dull, his invitation to come play with him in the world's possibilities and stories they unveil lit that perception on fire. In the resulting warmth and light, I invite you to join us as we take advantage of the somehow not-too-good-to-be-true combination of expanding our consciousness, blowing our mind, and just having a good time learning information. I hope you look into a thing or two we talk about, but I'm also cool if you just kick back, relax, and go thought-tripping with Mark Manley. Books. Books and information can feed you this stimulating experience and give you a richer experience in your moment-to-moment. It's almost like a drug because it's giving you a different consciousness. It's transformative. It changes the way you experience your moment to moment. Yeah, I love it. So this reminds me of conversations you and I have had before. You've told me about this term you have about thought tripping, where just like thinking about certain things that are so cool and so amazing, but still very, very real, like they're actual things. And it's like, you don't need fantasy or, you know, anything artificial or created. (laughs) There's yeah. so much here to just stand in awe of. And reality is stranger than fiction. Reality is so much weirder and more interesting and more mind-blowing than any fiction that any of the best artists or creative people could ever think of. I mean, before we knew the earth, the universe was expanding, who could have ever thought of that? <laughs> before we knew about the microscopic world, Who could have ever imagined that? It just wasn't in our awareness. And then when you start to to, to learn or study or experience the world or the universe, you can thought trip just sitting on your couch. Like you have so much information in your mind and context. You know, you can bring yourself to to the awareness of the context that we're in day to day. And what I mean by that is, We're on this planet, third planet from the star. Oh, a star. We're next to a star. We're floating in space. We're revolving around this giant plasma 
energy creator star and then there's trillions of stars elsewhere and then there's this universe and galaxies and when you think about the context right then and there you don't even have to go far to experience a thought trip it's like a different consciousness it's like this this experience of awe it's awe when you really think about think questions that everybody asked themselves when they were kids where are we how did we get here? What's going on? What the hell? What, like, what am I? What is this? How did this happen? Like any of those questions, any single one of them, if you just continue on that path of that question, it leads to more and more interesting questions. And we have the answer to some of these questions, which is even more mind boggling. And then that leads to more and more like beautiful questions. I guess we're kind of talking about science right now. And science is a culture of questions. And so when you get really far down science and you know what we know, what we've been building on for the last 500 years of the scientific revolution, and it's the biggest revolution in human thinking that has ever happened. And so when you follow this this revolution of thought, you can ask yourself questions that are like top shelf questions. You go into a bar and you want to order the rail whiskey or you want the top shelf whiskey. When you fill your mind with knowledge or you, you are a lifelong learner and you study things, you can ask questions that are just amazing questions and beautiful just because of the question. Because no matter what the answer is to this question, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. A, a small example of this would be, this is a very simplified example. Uh, we know that life comes from water. So the question begs, why? Why is water essential for consciousness? Now, no matter what the answer is to that question, that it is a question, a relevant question, a a sensical question that we can ask ourselves and ponder is in, in, in itself amazing and just amazing just incredible all is everything to me almost all is almost my religion and the thing that feeds me all that's like the endless well of all is science is the things that we've discovered and uncovered from science and the things that we could not have imagined again that you can't you can't make this stuff up until you go through a methodology to discover it and uncover it. And another example of that, or a great example of that, is quantum physics. Quantum physics makes zero sense. It doesn't make any logical sense, common sense. But we know it's doing this. We know that this is happening. Like a hard example for, for quantum physics is entanglement. Entanglement is this phenomenon where you have two particles, pairs of one another, basically. And once they're entangled and you separate them with any amount of distance, you could put these on one side and on the other side of the galaxy. So if you observe a positive spin, the other one, boom, snaps into a negative spin. And we're talking about instantaneously. We're not talking at the speed of light. So weirdly, these particles are in some sort of communication with each other that happens 
instantaneously across whatever amount of space you put between them. That's that's bizarre. That, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. It just doesn't make sense. It's just weird. And the two-slit experiment is another good one. Well, hold on before we get into that. So not nothing according to Einstein as well, and that has been proven through the mathematics and everything, is that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. But you right. just said, somehow, this characteristic is instantaneous. So then right. the question is, is it traveling faster than the speed of light, which the best math we have says isn't possible? Or is it, like you said, they're in some kind of spooky communication, and like we don't know, and it might be beyond our realm of understanding at this point until we can imagine some new way of thinking about it but we can see that it's happening. That's exactly the case. It might not be something that's traveling, right? Like a radio wave travels through space, a photon travels, but this instantaneous reaction may not be traveling, but like you said, we don't know enough to explain that. We just know it's happening. It just happens. It just happens. Which is the beauty of every... every (laughs) Every line of, of uh, discovery that you go through with science leads to a door of mystery, leads to a door of like five more questions. Just because you answered one question, it grows five more questions. And that's a good example of that because you're just like, well, then what's going on? What is that? What's happening? Yeah. And, and there's real world applications of these things like you hear this. And I think it's fun enough just to talk about it and think about it and have that that experience, that feeling of like, what in the world is going on? Of awe, exactly. But also, I just read an article in the last month or two that we've now built computers that compute information based on this principle of entanglement so they can be instantaneous. And we thought our computers are pretty darn fast as it is. They're amazing already. And this is like the next level. They call it quantum teleportation. They're not teleporting people, not even close, right? Maybe, maybe way off someday. But they're teleporting that information is, is kind of how they're referring to it because we don't know how else to really describe how do we get this information, but somehow in that circuit board or, or whatever is going on in that computer, it's way over my head, but they're, they're leveraging this entanglement where, all right, we flip this information here and we know on the other side, the output is happening instantaneously. And our computers are about to get, if they leverage this even better, even more powerful. And what does that mean for our society and our lives? It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy. And then, and then quantum computers, I mean, you're talking about a certain aspect of, of quantum computers, but just quantum mm-hmm. computers themselves before that, before that leveraging of entanglement was already, wow, because now you have three letters, basically. Computers communicate in ones and zeros, and with a quantum computer, they communicate in one, zeros, and then a one and a zero, because with the quantum physics, you can make, you can have something that's both. That's the wave and particle duality of reality. Particles are a wave and a particle. Yeah. So this is where you want to get back into the dual slit experiment that you started to, to get into when I stopped you. As I understand it, at least to the, to the best of my abilities, which there certainly stops at a certain point um, when it comes to this experiment because it's too wild. But you have a wall opposite you in the room. And in between you and the wall, you put a partition with two slits. And when you shine a light through it, what you see on the wall uh, opposite you is this, what's called an interference pattern. And it's 
as the, the light waves are traveling through those slits, they interfere with each other. You can picture like ripples of a wave going through each, like a water wave even, going through each slit, and they're going to interact. And so you're going to have some peaks and some troughs, right? Crests and valleys, whatever you want to call them on this wave. And then those are going to splash onto the wall. The light splashes onto the wall. So you have light and dark, light and dark, light and dark in a wave pattern. And that makes sense because you're shining a light through it. And when you shoot something like particles one at a time in a kind of a random pattern, so some go through one slit, some go through the other, and it's one after the other. And so you see these two slits like you'd expect. But then you say, okay, well, what if we shot light one packet or particle at a time of light? And so we set that up to do that. And when we do that extra step, it still makes this wave pattern like light did when we just shined a normal wave continuous beam through. Yeah. And we have a pattern of interference with other photons when there's only one photon going through at a time. Exactly. So which makes no sense. So we say, hold on, something's going on here. So we're going to set up a little camera, a little observe. What's that? I'm just laughing and it's like, yeah, what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, yeah. So so we're going to, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. How can this be? We're shooting one at a time, but it's making the pattern like we're shooting a bunch at a time, but we're not. So let's set up a camera and see what's going on at the point where it crosses through these slits because it's not making any sense. And as right. soon as we do that and measure it, we do it again. And now we see two slits on the wall. It's as if the photons are like, no, if you're going to measure it, we're not going to show you our secret and we'll act like you think we're going to act. And they just make these two little slits on the wall. (laughs) You're like, what? And now this sounds like the most unscientific thing in the world that I'm saying. But this is how the experiment worked and has worked and been repeated. What sense does that make? Yeah, this is a beautiful thing about quantum physics is the classical physicists really didn't like it. A lot of them pushed back on it a lot. Einstein was one of them, pushed back hard. Because it just felt like science was taking a step back. It wasn't so, you know, you can put it into an equation and this comes out. In these equations, probability is the foundation of these equations. Well, probability. Why, are, why is probability the foundation of this equation? It should just be like force equals mass times acceleration. I don't want probabilities. Give me a number and data that I can plug into the calculation and <laughs> have my answer. That's not how yep. quantum physics works. And it's quite interesting in that way. And, and why that it's based on, on probabilities is a beautiful little rabbit hole to jump in. I think of how the math and, supports this. And I think this is right. what why these things get traction in and they don't make any sense. Like, okay, they got to be doing it wrong. Like we didn't see this experiment. It's nonsense, but it's like, no, the the scientific community for years now has been like, well, this is the way it goes. Like somehow that photon is a wave and a particle at the same time, even though those are two different things. How can that be? But there is math that somehow backs it up. Everything we know about math, when math is right, like it's right. The the really, really watered down example of this that helps me understand it at least is two plus two equals four. Before we knew math, somebody came along and said that. And people were like, really? Two plus two equals four? And they started showing them, yeah, if you take these two things and add these two things, you've got four. And they kept doing it and testing and testing it. And then people were like, all right, well, two plus two equals four. That math makes sense. And then some genius comes along and is like, hey, guys, I have a hypothesis. If two plus two equals four, I bet four minus two equals two if you took two away. And they're like, what the hell's minus? What's that mean? Because subtraction never existed in this experiment, right? And then he shows them and they test it and it keeps happening. And they're like, oh my God, not only does two plus two equals four, but if you rearrange it, 
four minus two equals two. These scientists and physicists and mathematicians are doing that with the most complex math known to man that's been proven over time. But then they rearrange it in some way and they're like, holy cow, if all the math we've done throughout human history is right, um, guys, these things are waves and particles. And now we have this crazy experiment that shows that the math is right. So if our understanding doesn't comprehend it, something's wrong with our understanding because the math is right and the experiment's right. Maybe we're doing it wrong, but everything seems to point to we're just, we just don't have it in our brains to comprehend this yet. It's like, what? Yeah. And that's the key. The key that you said in there is test it. And then you test it. And then you test it again. Yeah. It's like a put up or shut up kind of mentality. Prove it. Prove it again. And the testing is made up of people going, I think you did it wrong this way. Your camera must have gotten in the way of that particle or something. Yeah. You know, I'm just making yeah, this up. Yeah. So that's why. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to move the camera further back and I get the same result. Yeah. And then somebody else says, yeah. well, you use the wrong kind of particle. So I'm going to change that and see if the experiment changes. And they keep trying to change all the variables to see what's really causing the problem here. What's fooling right. our understanding. Right. And then after a while, they got to go, we haven't proven it wrong yet. So it's really starting to point to this must be a thing. What else are we thinking of incorrectly that we could change to come around to this? Because it seems like we're proving it right. And then that makes you ask one of those top shelf questions. When you understand things like this, you, or you're aware of this, these things, you can ask yourself something like, well, then how is, is consciousness changing the behavior of physical reality in some way? That might not be the right question, but the fact that just questions that come from that are bizarre and mind-blowing and beautiful. And when you're going on this thought trip, it fills you with awe. The whole, down, the whole time you're skipping down the sidewalk of these thoughts, you're filled with awe. You're, it's like you're high. It's like you're high on these <laughs> thoughts that are just overwhelmingly beautiful and, and the true meaning of the word awe. And, and so what's consciousness? Because then what's consciousness? The hard question. Nobody still knows what consciousness is, and we've been asking that since the beginning of time. What is this thing? But that we know that it was birthed out of the universe, that given the right conditions, consciousness will literally spawn out of the universe, will just come out of the universe, which is just amazing, (laughs) beautiful. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. Like, what's consciousness? All right, well, let's check out the brain. So we look into the brain and then the brain is doing amazing, incredible, weird things like neuroplasticity. So, so to place it in a hard context, the brain and something weird that the brain does is uh, there's, a, there's a type of cell in the brain called glial cells, but there's a certain type of glial cells called astrocytes. Astrocytes are sort of spying on neuron connections neuronal connections connected to the neuron connections. But the fun, the weird thing about astrocytes, one of the weird things about astrocytes is they can have 2 million connections. Hmm. So that is basically where abstract thought comes from. When you can connect things that are seemingly not connected, it's probably astrocytes. But The hard example context that I was trying to get to that I'm driving to is when they did an autopsy on Einstein's brain, they found that he had something like 20% more than a normal brain of astrocytes. 
So here's this genius, this person who will go down in history forever. And we can physically look at his brain and see why he's different and see where his thoughts and his consciousness is coming from in a way. You can see that his brain was different. It wasn't just some, you know, whatever we can think of. It was, we could see the physical differences in his brain. Those astrocytes in Einstein's brain were developed. He wasn't born like that. Ah, so you're saying he wasn't born that way. From his studies and his effort, he created this vast network in his brain. Yes, absolutely. That's, that is ah, neuroplasticity. Gotcha. And it's quite bizarre, actually, how that manifests itself in weird ways as well. So, for example, you have a body map in your brain of your body. It's not in order, right? So it's not like you could physically look at the parts of your brain that's responsible for touching, for the feeling of touch in your face and neck and chest and stomach. You know, it's not in order, but it's in there. So you have a body map of your brain or of your body in your brain. So what happens if you get uh, an arm cut off? That part of your brain that is used to processing information that comes from that arm is no longer getting stimulation. And that part of your brain ends up dying in a way. And another part of your brain will, will literally grow into that space. And so what you get with people is they have a phantom arm. They will feel mm-hmm. a phantom limb, a <laughs> phenomenon of phantom limbs. It's because they still have that part, you know, the part of their brain that's responsible for that arm is still in their brain. They just don't have that arm anymore. So right. they're feeling a phantom wow. arm, literally. And that's bizarre. But if yeah. you touch your nub, they will report feeling it in the nub as well as another part of their body or, or another part of their body. Because in that brain map of your body, another piece grew into that space. And the piece that grew into that is where you're feeling that. So for example, there's a lady where they have, I saw a documentary where they touch her nub and she feels it on her nub and on her face. Hmm. So a face part of her brain map grew into that space. And there was like a little interconnected wiring that didn't get trimmed. And she has this bizarre feeling. And there's a, there's a lot of examples that are, bizarre as far as what the brain is doing and neuroplasticity in general. Yeah. When you talk about what makes something up or like, what is consciousness? What makes it up? Like on the level of like trying to describe that, uh, (laughs) what's it made of or what, what even are the causes of it? Um, other than just, yeah, the universe spawns it or evolution, like what's happening in the brain. Yeah. When this particle interacts with that one And, and it even goes to like, we, don't and can't know these things we we just keep trying to narrow in on stuff like even the stuff we do know and know really well and have done really powerful things with like what makes everything up atoms we eventually got that and that was a huge breakthrough right told us so much and we learned so much from it then we learn atoms are made up of stuff they're not fundamental atoms are made up of protons neutrons and electrons okay those are the fundamental pieces no then there's what quarks make those up and now i'm like at the edge of what i even un- come close to understanding but there's quarks that make up like an electron and then what are those yeah, made and then up you of? Get particles too. yeah and we have this standard model that tells you what the base particles are but like then you ask yourself i'm no scientist i'm not as smart as these people but at every step of the way throughout history there's been something smaller and smaller so you can ask yourself what is a quark made of 
And if they have an answer to that, what's that thing made of? And then you can keep going. And like, is it infinite? Well, there's the Planck, the Planck uh, minimum. He calculated that, you know, it doesn't go infinite. There is a smallest possible scale. I just looked it up. The Planck scale sets the universe's minimum limit beyond which the laws of physics break. But then you can still ask questions like, what's beyond that? Nothing? Or just something that's not governed by the laws of physics, which, what would that even mean? Not governed by the laws of physics. The laws of physics that we know about. (laughs) That we know that we've discovered. So you can go in that small direction. And then you go in the, the bigger and bigger direction. Okay, we revolve around a star and we're one of eight or nine planets, depending how you define it, whatever, that revolves around this particular star. And you go three out and there's life. And we think we're the only one in our solar system that has life. But why couldn't any of these trillions of other stars in the universe have life? Like there's the odds that we're the only one that have life are ridiculously small. But then what are the odds that that life is going to find each other and interact? Because the universe is so, so vast. Like those things are so far away. They take light numbers of years that we can't even conceive of to travel that far. And light's the fastest something can go. Like how big everything is. And then you're like, how big is the universe that we can understand? And we think we maybe have a measurement for that and it's expanding. But like, how can you, what's on the other side of that? What does that mean? Like either direction you want to go, there's just like mind blowing stuff. And people like, see, science doesn't know everything. (laughs) Great. No, we don't. But isn't it fun to think about? The more you know, the more you don't know. And when you have this vivid, like high definition view of our reality it's it's just like experiencing it on steroids so that that's why we that's why I'm, I'm comparing it in a way to drugs because it's these this intense thought trip these understandings these questions are intense and it puts things in a vivid very vivid way but it's in a mysterious way in it's this sort of duality of understanding and not understanding the more you understand the more you know you what you don't understand and it's beautiful mm-hmm. in that way that that mystery becomes a vivid mystery not a vague sort of i don't know kind of mystery it, right. it becomes a more like a i don't know kind of mystery <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, and they're like there should be a humility with it that I I hope we've expressed or has come through. Like we're fans of this stuff, right? And we're read up on it to a certain point, but yeah. like it shouldn't come across as a this is how much we know everybody. It's just like isn't this stuff cool? Don't you want to look into this with us? And I have in conversations had people sort of take me like that or take it like that. And for me it's just like me on a jungle gym playing and inviting some other kids to come play. Like, check yeah. this out. Check this out. <laughs> this is crazy. Look at this. Hey, look at this. Hey, come over here. Look at this. It's just, <laughs> you know, when you have this endless well of all, you want to share it. Yeah. And this goes to, like, science is not a culture of we know everything. No, we don't. It's the way to go because it keeps giving you answers. But like you say, every time you find answers, you can then keep asking cool, important, interesting questions and you get kind of the yeah. best of both worlds. You, you get the information, the knowledge that changes the world. And you also get this imaginative wonder and awe at the same time. Yeah. 
it's like a intravenous shot of curiosity and it takes, <laughs> you, it takes you down rabbit holes that are just full of full of, of mind-blowing couldn't have thought of before amazing things and it just points you where to look basically what are you curious about i'm curious about this all right well look over here well, i don't know but we know to look over here which is crazy and the father of quantum electrodynamics richard feynman is a fascinating person look into him look him up yeah you had me do that before this convo and i'm glad you did i've probably watched four hours of just him on youtube talking about this stuff and, and like he even talks about simple stuff like uh, there's just so many things i recommend people to just youtube him and watch one of them's called fun to wonder just watch it like he's way into it he's like an amusing little cute little old man who just loves science but makes it so attainable and interesting and you can see in him the awe yeah oh yeah in him that fascination that that culture of science that is a little kid just asking questions and getting giddy about answers. The, the culture of science, you can see it in a lot of scientists. They talk like a, like a, with this childhood fascination, and that's what they're feeding themselves. That's why they're like that is because they're feeding themselves this endless well of awe. And Richard Feynman is a perfect example of that. I think that is an important note to point out that for anyone who's genuinely curious to learn this stuff, probably better to learn it from a Richard Feynman than a Mark Manley and a Dan Greco. Yeah, we're trying. Absolutely. We're enjoying it. Absolutely. We're just fans of the team. We're not on the team, you know? Absolutely. There's just a joy to be had there. And especially how you frame it, too, of, of science being a culture of questions. And I think some people who aren't as maybe in touch with it or, or as interested by it on the surface because of maybe however they've been exposed to it, what have you. But they, they hear science and they hear people think science is good. And they're like, oh, you've got all the answers to everything. You're uh -huh. no, and it's like, no, like, like you said, we know some of the answers and some really big ones that are really cool and really great. But science will be the first one to tell you what we don't know. Absolutely. I've run into that experience countless times of, of people who are turned off by science because that's how they, that's their perception of science, that it's this know-it-all right. Here are the dry answers. Two plus two equals four. There's no mystery or beauty in this. It's just raw, this is this, and period. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. So I was going to tell a specific story about this girl that I met in China who had that exact perspective on science. And, uh, and I, we spent the rest of the night talking about science. And it was awesome. Like she I, she, I could see that she was seeing science from a perspective that she had never been introduced to before. Because she had clearly, like we had just described, she clearly saw science as this know-it-all culture of answers rather than a culture of questions. And the more we talked, the more she started to seem, seem to really appreciate the beauty and really appreciate the the knowledge that comes with that and what you can do with that knowledge and what you can do with that knowledge is have an amazing thought trip, like a drug, easily into beautiful places. I mean, you can imagine yourself onto Io, right? Io, one of the moons of Jupiter, the most volcanic body in our solar system. 
and the, the gravity of Jupiter and the gravity of the sun are like squeezing in and out and that's what's making it actively volcanic. And if you sat on the surface, you would see geysers, geysers of lava that went miles into the sky. Now you would never be able to experience something like that on earth, but if you, were, if, if you know enough science, you can take yourself to somewhere like that. And I think she started to appreciate that. It's one of the things that we talked about. We were walking on the, on a near beach and there were rocks on the side of the beach and these were giant boulders and they had a lot of uh, black rocks in the middle of them, right? And so I pointed to them and talked about the, where these rocks come from, the story that these rocks tell. Just rocks. To anybody else who doesn't know this knowledge, it's just rocks. But to somebody who knows this knowledge, they see millions, tens of millions of years of a mountain forming event that, that spewed hot magma rock from the center of the earth into this surrounding rock. And, that, and then it, it acted like a liquid. And then you get like bubbles in a, in a soda can and then they freeze. And so you basically see these bubbles encapsulated in this different rock around it. And so you can see that that story that tells a tens of millions of years story, that's the transformative effect that knowledge and education has on your conscious experience moment to moment. Yeah. Yeah. People hearing how you talk about this with those uh, maybe preconceived notions about science, like they've got to just be blown away. The, uh, not, maybe the people, hopefully the people, but I mean those notions like, oh, it's, there's so much more to it. But also like where you started your story with the travel and the experience and culture. And you're speaking to, you know, the example you gave in the, with the couch surfing, you're having these deep connections with a devout Muslim and an atheist. I think a lot of times science gets stood up against religion. And there are um, arenas where that conversation makes sense. But as far as a lifestyle and, and how you want to live, like it doesn't have to be this villain against other people's lifestyles. You know, it's just... There are stories and stories are such an integral element of the human condition. We love stories. We always have. And it just unlocks more stories, more information and more, you know, opportunity to explore more about our condition, our life. It's absolutely it's just amazing. Absolutely. Because people are a product of their environment. And if somebody is a devout Muslim or, a, you know, a evangelical Christian or whatever they whatever the thing is, or Zoroastrian, they are a product of their environment. And then you know the region you're in. If you know the history of that region, it, it broadens the context of, of the moment because you know why they are that religion, so to speak, whether it be the Silk Road trade that brought this, uh, that spread Buddhism here or whether it be whatever it is, you know, whatever the story is behind whatever cultural uh, artifact that that person is displaying, it's indicative of a story, of a broader and bigger story, of the momentum of history. Because that's all anybody is, is a product of their environment, and their environment is a product of the momentum of history. And so that's fascinating in and of itself when you talk to anybody about their story. And like you were talking about, there's stories everywhere. There's rabbit holes everywhere. So it's just a matter of where you want to prioritize your time and what's most interesting to you to follow that just draws you. But there is a story everywhere and anywhere that you look. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to get into where history ties in this in a minute, but first, like everything you just outlined, you know, talking about the different science and that, like the rocks, that's really, who's going to know that about rocks? You have a degree in geology, I believe, correct? I started in geology when I went to college, but I have a degree in geography and geographic information systems. So no, I do not have a degree in geology, but I've self-studied after that. Right. And that's where I was going to get to next. So in that, in that one realm, okay, that's, that's why Mark knows rocks maybe because that's what he studied and that was his specialty. Great. But beyond that, I, I know you've, like you said, a lifelong learner. How do you, how do we explore these things? If I'm like, okay, you got me, I'm interested. I want to, I want to learn. Where do I start? What do I do? That's an easy answer. Books. Any particular kind? <laughs> I mean, I mean. Just whatever subject I'm into, just <laughs> grab one and start going. Yeah. Nonfiction books, I would say. I mean, when you when you have somebody whose whose career is sur- is around a certain topic, and they have studied this and they've studied primary sources and et cetera, et cetera, and then they all they put everything they synthesize all of their career and information that they've studied over a long period of time all into a packaged book that you can read and get this concentration of information from. It's transformative. Why would you it's not? This, I mean, knowledge is transformative. And when you package a bunch of knowledge into a book, it's priceless. It's priceless. If you, if you look, this is almost going kind of meta with what we're talking about. But if you look at the history of books, you can see how transformative it is. Mm. Right? Okay. So 1445, the Gutenberg Press is invented, right? We had presses in China before and blah, blah, blah. But the Gutenberg Press was a turning point. By 1480, it was all over Europe. You went from expensive, time-consuming, monks handwriting and binding books, then everybody's illiterate, to cheap, fairly easily accessible books because you can produce them on a relatively mass scale. And then you start being able to spread information like it never spread before and people become literate, right? So you, you, there's a historical experiment, experiment that happened. So by 1480, it was all over Europe, the Gutenberg Press. In 1485, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire banned the printing press in the Ottoman Empire. And then so you fast forward. The first significant printing press in the Ottoman Empire, 1798, I believe. 1798. 300 years after these other places have been expanding and and the impacts of the Gutenberg press have been transformative in their society. So you get Gutenberg press in in Europe and then you get literacy rates start skyrocketing and then people can read the Bible themselves. They don't have to have the church interpreted for them. And then you get the Reformation. And then the Reformation leads to the scientific revolution. And then the scientific revolution leads to the industrial revolution. There was no accident that the industrial revolution happened in Europe. And I would say it is it owes that to the Gutenberg press spread around Europe. And I just give that historical context to talk about how transformative books are. And so to your question, how do you go about this or that? It, books. Books. Non-fiction books, but also fiction books have a lot of beautiful things and cool things in them for sure. But, and people, whatever, but I would say. <laughs> yeah, the whole other books. branch of, 
of the world, whatever. <laughs> I'm following you. There's a different beauty and joy to be there. It's going to be so, for a different real show. Quick, just to end that sort of yeah, put yeah. a cap on the historical context is, all right, so you skip to 1800. By 1800, Germany had, um, if I have my numbers right up in my head, is like 60% of the male population was literate. 40% of, of the females were literate. Actually, those numbers are for England. Germany's numbers were even higher. So you have a large portion of the population that is literate, which for the entire expanse of human history was never like that. Writing and literacy was, was to the elite. And now you have everyday, you know, everyday people becoming literate. Okay, in 1800, in the Ottoman Empire, you still have roughly 2%, 1 to 2% of people who are literate. What does that do? How does that manifest itself in society day to day, right? And you can sort of see the momentum of history in those places to this day. And any, any significant really time or, or uh, event in history, you can trace back things today that are reverberating from the momentum of history. And again, when you have this context of knowledge of history or science or whatever it may be, the knowledge yeah. that you have, you can put things into this context and have a richer experience of your everyday moment to moment. And it's just a drug. It's thought tripping. That's what thought tripping is. It's like the best drug. You know what I mean? Like, where can I get the good stuff, right? The good knowledge and good information, right? Because there's trash and plastic information and, and cheap manipulating propaganda information and what have you. But there's also the good stuff, and that's the good stuff. Let's take a quick detour. You say the good stuff versus plastic, trash, manipulating propaganda. There's so much information out there. We know this. You know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it true? Is it false? How do you tell the difference these days? One thing is, is books. When you have a broad view of a, of a situation or of a geopolitical situation maybe, and you have, you've read a book about it or a book or two or a few you have a larger context to put things in. So the everyday news cycle is one thing, but having like a bird's eye view of what's going on is another thing. And when you have that bird's eye view, which is really, I, I would say, only given by, by books, you, you're not pulled this way and that way with the weather because you know the climate. But even in the, the modern society we have with the search engine and that, okay, you read one article, I would suggest Googling it and reading three or four more and seeing what the yeah. culmination of those three or four articles points to. Yes. Where's the overlap? And right. dig into it. Yeah. So if they give you a piece of information, look into that piece of information. Whatever you're reading, if it's sourcing it, the information, like if it says something with numbers in it, 70% this or this and this, it should say according to blah, blah, blah. And if it's a reputable thing that they're referencing, okay, I can, you can, I'm following you. And, and then dig into it yourself. Check it yourself and check these numbers. And understanding how science processes information, I think, will help the average person process information. Because the evidence starts to paint the picture. You don't make the conclusions. You be open-minded and skeptical at the same time. You pay attention to the sources and the sourcing and how something speaks as well. If it tends to play on emotional words, be skeptical, right? And then gathering information and evidence. And nine times out of 10, that evidence starts to pile up in one direction. Neil deGrasse Tyson talks about science as being 
a methodology which tries really, really hard, does all it can to not be fooled. And that's what you're trying to do. You, you may not know anything for certain, but before you believe something or take it as fact, test it. So something stands out and whether I like it or not, but I think especially if I like it, if it's something that makes me feel good, I should really, really test that and try to try to challenge it and check it. And if it stands up to my challenge and my check, then I can believe it because I know it's not just because I liked it that I believe it. It's because I have evidence. It's not easy to do. It's much easier to hear something we like and go, oh yeah, that must be certainly. what it is. But certainly. where does that evidence come like It said? can be difficult to be your own devil's advocate. And that yes. you should. If you don't have your own devil's advocate, then you have no mechanism to self-correct if you are going down a wrong road. And so you need to be your own devil's advocate. Yeah. So I, I, you mentioned wanting to put a cap on where you're going with that timeline. I want to put like a seal on that cap. Where, where was the Ottoman Empire? Uh, Northern Africa and the Levant, more or less. So are, are you making the, the, the case or the claim, I guess, that that might explain some differences we're still seeing and dealing with today because of that decision way back when to ban the printing press in the Ottoman Empire? Yeah. That one decision by that one guy sealed a lot of the momentum of history for that region of the world. And, and that's where you get you know, the Arab Spring that happened in the mid-2000s. Those were grievances of the population that have been continuous for hundreds of years. I mean, there's multiple factors. And, and again, when you imbibe books and information, you have the strings on these multiple factors and you can kind of see it in this stained glass window kind of complexity. But just to simplify it is, or, or one simple example, is um, China was far more developed as far as navigation, as far as shipbuilding, than anything the world had, and definitely anything that Europe had. If you saw a picture of the boat that the famous captain of China, the Zhang Ji captain in Europe, in China, Zhang He, his first expedition in like 14, 1405, when you look at that ship compared to the ships that came, like the Santa Maria, or the ships that Europe was producing hundreds, a hundred years later, they are far larger, more advanced. You can tell that there's more of a development in that aspect of their society. But interestingly enough, in 1436, China banned all shipbuilding. They they sort of in, closed themselves off, so they stopped trading with the rest of the world for various reasons. But 1436, they, they banned it. It was illegal to make ships. And they were using a lot of their resources to make the Great Wall at that time. But the point is, is to think about that and think about when Europe went from, and we're talking specifically about Northern Europe, went from a backwater area that was completely illiterate and behind the times in most ways. And that like the Mongol Empire didn't even see as worth conquering worth the effort, like going from that to the powerhouse of the world was really the Columbus's uh, voyage and Vasco da Gama's voyage around the Horn of Africa when he found a route to India and cut out the middleman of the Silk Road. Those two things happened in the same decade, 1492 and 1498. And when you think about China... If they hadn't, if the, if the 
emperor of China hadn't made that decision, that one guy, how different would history be? And what would be different? You know, would America and the Americas be populated by um, ethnically Chinese people or, or what? Whatever the case may be, they didn't take that ban off of shipbuilding until 1567. That's more than 100 years. And during that 100 years is when like the golden age of exploration and, and shipping and trade was happening. And it was, I mean, it was almost like that era's industrial revolution. And one decision by one man sort of, I mean, I'm sure he had a you know council of people, but whatever, a, a decision by a small number of people changed the course of that area for the rest of history. And they reverberates down. And that is what I mean when I say the momentum of history. These are just quirks, dominoes falling randomly, momentums of history that we now see and that we attribute to different things if we don't know the full context, that if we're ignorant to the full context. And we're always going to be ignorant to probably, I don't know, 80, whatever what number you want to put on it, to most of the context. Just like in, in the fossil record, as far as geology, our, our knowledge of any past ecology or animals comes from, I mean, it's very rare for a fossil, for something to be fossilized. And when we're talking about all of the fossils that we've ever discovered, all of the animals that we know have come and gone, we only know roughly 2%. The fossil record represents roughly 2% of what has lived and come and gone, the creatures that have been on this earth. How do we know and that? And that 98%, we, we can do calculations as far as the, the uh, biological diversity that we see today how many fossils that we've come up with and various, you know, educated, very, very educated and methodical guesses to have that number. Yeah, let's qualify that. People might be skeptical and they should be. Skepticism is a great thing about science. When I say, how do we know that? We don't. It's our best educated guess. It's the one with the most information behind it that we have. Right. Until something with more information comes along, that's what we're going to consider to be true until it's proven otherwise and then we'll change because that's how science works and that's a beautiful part about it too so yeah. i just like throwing that qualifier out there but it's, keep going it's perpetually self-correcting self-sharpening method and it is it is powerful as we well know because we're talking on different sides of the world right now. <laughs> and even if that number is off by huge even if that number let's let's just be crazy and say that that number is off by 10 percent which without going into this rabbit hole, is being very generous. But even if it's 12%, that's still ridiculous. That still means that we don't know 88% of animals and, and, and creatures that have come and gone. 50 would be crazy. Right, exactly. The point is, is that we, I mean, I got off into a tangent just to say that we never know the full context. But the context that we do know will at least help us navigate the current context and at least give us the best chance and better approach to any problems we may have and just selfishly a richer and more dynamic experience <laughs> again. Yeah. Meanwhile, the whole rest of life was happening at that, those times too. Yeah. So yeah. surely like people might be experts in another field and have this other information and be like, Mark, Dan, you're not even considering all this impact or you want to, you want to point to that? You're not pointing to this. And it's like, okay, let's open it up to all those things. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can only say one word at a time and one concept at a time when you're speaking. And yeah. everything is really complex as far as what's happening day to day. 
one of my least favorite phrases is here's the thing. Like when people start to explain something to you and they say, here's the thing. Sometimes it's innocent, but a lot of times it's like, no, there's not a the thing. There's tons of things. There's endless things. So if you want to tell me one that resonates with you that you think is important, cool, let's do that. But to say that there's one cause for something or one person or one, I don't know, you know what I mean? One event and and block out the rest. It's that's not responsible to do. And I, I worry that that's what a lot of people today in discourse do is they've got their one reason, their one thing that they're going to cling to. And that's it. It's like, no, there's yeah. so much more. This story never ends. The stories never end. You can just continually learn about a place or any rabbit hole you go down. There's exactly. no end to the story. It's just a matter of where you lose interest or where you're like, okay, I have, let me go to a different story or switch to something else because there is no end to the story. It's just a continual thing. That's true for the universe. This is the big bang continuing to bang. This is just the big bang continuing to explode. This story just is not ending. It's just this continual thing. And any story or rabbit hole that you go down has that same aspect to it. Even if you froze time and made it stop, all the little details within that story or within that little moment are endless in and of itself. Like Take this moment. If you just froze this moment and then walked outside and then just explored for a hundred years, you would keep seeing different, cool, interesting things that are happening right now that we are oblivious to. Wow. There are some pot of dolphins that are shooting through the ocean right now that look amazingly beautiful and we are not thinking about it in any way. That's but, I've never see right there. That's a thought trip for me. I've never thought of that. If you paused time right now and just explored the world in freeze frame, it would be <laughs> the most magnificent adventure you could go on without any action. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Holy cow. Even if you could teleport outside of like freeze this time and teleport to different galaxies or those those magma geysers on on Io, the moon of Jupiter, or and it was it would just be this amazing thing. This and this is our context. This is the thing that I think that kids are almost more aware of than adults in a way. Yeah. That this is crazy. That kids keep asking, why this? Why that? Well, what's that? Why? Where did that come from? And, da, 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 da. and it's still, we're still asking these same questions in a way. Knowledge and information and these stories and science and just educating yourself gives you a rich, conscious experience. And people say ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and to me, ignorance gets old real quick. Ignorance gets stale. And repetitive. And it just doesn't compare to the drug that knowledge is, that science is. I love it. So I I think we'd all be better served to look at life more this way. Like you sound freaking engaged with life. You sound excited to explore this stuff. You sound inspired. And that's all the things that I want to connect to personally and, and wanted to do it through this show. Hopefully it connects with other people. So given that, that we want to maybe see if we can be more this way. What's one decision that you made that you think contributes to the best parts of who you are today? Uh, I would say that I prioritized experience and my inner world and my inner thoughts. And 
prioritizing that, I guess, would be the decision that has led to a lot of who I am today and, and prioritizing my free time. I want as much free time to be able to explore these thought trips as possible and explore the world and travel and have these moments and experiences and, and be able to do these kinds of things. That has guided my life in a way that I'm grateful for. People say, I didn't like elementary school, or I didn't like middle school, or I didn't like high school. And I always felt, or, or people who travel and they said, I didn't like that country or this country. And I always felt like that said more about that person than it did about that country or about that time in life. I loved elementary school. I enjoyed middle school. I had a good time in high school and college and throughout my life. The, the way I prioritized my things and what I spend my time and invest my time and consciousness in doing has made me a grateful person for the, the life that I experienced. And that exact prioritization has probably been what's made me, in a large part, who I am. I'm grateful that you shared that and shared everything uh, that you did with us, Mark. Really appreciate it. And maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll have you back again sometime. This was fun. I always enjoy conversations with you, Dan. Hey, thank you very much for listening to this little creation. If it made you smile, let's do it again. And in the meantime, please leave a rating and a review. Follow on Instagram at Most Alive Podcast for bonus content previews or to contact me and maybe even tell some other people where they can feel most alive. Okay, as mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I'm going to do a little skeptical analysis, a little fact check of the claims made in the episode particularly that the printing press became prevalent in Europe about 300 years before it did in the Ottoman Empire, and that the reason for that was a ban by Ottoman sultans. These sounded like claims worth investigating when I heard them, so I did so, and we discussed combing sources for good information in the episode, so it feels only right to hold the show to a similar standard. I'll recap quickly now. Emphasis on quickly. So I googled something like, did Ottoman sultans ban printing press? Now, let's assume my bias is that I want what Mark said to be accurate so I could use it in the episode. I should then use that awareness to compensate for that and ensure I'm being skeptical of information that would support it so I'm not lulled into belief by my confirmation bias, although no less skeptical towards any information in general. First, I went to Wikipedia, and we should know that Wikipedia can be edited by anyone, so we should be very careful. But it is then checked, and most importantly, has the ability to have sources cited, which should be our main guide there. And on this Ottoman printing press topic, it states, according to Soraya Faroki, apologies for the pronunciation, I'm sure I'm not getting that right, but she's a scholar on the Ottoman Empire, I looked her up. Quote, printing in the Arabic script after encountering strong opposition by Muslim legal scholars and manuscript scribes remained formally and informally prohibited in the Ottoman Empire between 1483 and 1729, end quote. And there are actually three sources cited. This seems to support the claim. However, this, quote, or informally, end quote, wording begins to pull it into question. If it were informal, it maybe wasn't an explicit ban. The Daily Saba is another source. Its article on our topic points out multiple examples of printing presses or books printed by press in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in Italy and Greece, starting in 1493. This could refute the idea of a ban, but books also very well could have been printed despite a ban, people have broken rules before, or any possibilities in between. But give it the benefit of the doubt at this point. However, the article cites no sources and makes statements like, when talking about the first Greek printing house in 1627, quote, the very first thing that the Greek printing house printed was a booklet targeting the Jews, end quote, which to me indicates some agenda here. That's not really relevant to the timeline and matters in question. Seems like an emotional appeal and it makes me suspicious. The article then states that there was an official decree in 1587 allowing printing presses on the European soil of the Ottoman Empire. If I'm reading correctly, that means only in that section and seems to imply a ban was present elsewhere and could have been present beforehand there and was now being overruled. Still some 100 years after the invention of the press, but no doubt sooner than the 300 years generally claimed. I found no other sources mentioning this decree, though, so I'd have to trust this one source on this one, which is always shaky. The article also states that Turks just didn't like printed books, preferring the more artful hand-done books, that's all. 
So again, an explanation other than a ban for a lack of adoption, but a lack of adoption nonetheless. Lastly, the article states that the first Muslim printing press in 1727 was only 36 years after the first press in New York. New York is not in Europe, and 36 years before 1727 is not the 14 or 1500s, which is the actual comparison we've been investigating. So this is not really relevant to the conversation of Europe broadly adopting the press about 250 years earlier. So again, it calls the source into question. Why are we pointing this out? As I said, the article cites no sources, so there are a lot of reasons for skepticism. I then googled this source and through Wikipedia and MediaBiasFactCheck.org found that the Daily Saba has been called into question multiple times by multiple other sources for being a right-leaning propaganda vehicle for the Turkish government, and that seems in line with the natural questions I had reading their article. Again, we won't throw everything they said away, but maybe take it with a grain of salt. Already here, we're seeing our evidence mounting towards some conclusions. Four sources so far agree on a lack of initial adoption of the printing press in the Ottoman Empire. They don't quite agree on the reason why. Since I'm trying to avoid confirmation bias, we'll march on for more. History.stackexchange.com. This is kind of an article or post, almost like a blog site, where people can just make comments. But it does cite sources, three of them. The first is the one we just reviewed. The second is by Dr. Catherine Schwartz, a PhD historian of the Ottoman Empire, who claims there's no hard evidence of a ban. And a third by economics professors who point to financial reasons for, quote, restricting the technology, end quote. At this point, I asked Mark for his sources. It's now seeming that his claim of a ban is quite questionable. He sent me... First, more info from the same work of Dr. Schwartz, which reiterated her claim of a lack of an evidence of an explicit ban, even though it's continuously mentioned by historians, and points to nine different reasons given the lack of adoption, including, quote, the jealous interests of the intellectual elite, end quote, which I believe means those whose livelihood was threatened by the new technology, the ones who did the printing by hand, as I saw this in other sources not mentioned here. Mark's second source comes from a Chapman University paper that also states, while it's common for historians to mention the ban, there's no direct proof it existed. The paper goes on to say, however, that there is indirect evidence that suggests some type of severe restriction was in place. For example, when petitioning for the first Muslim printing press, the one the Daily Saba earlier mentioned as being only 36 years after the press in New York, the petitioner wrote a treatise on the benefits of printing seeking to obtain explicit permission to start printing. The new technology would be, quote, unveiled like a bride and will not again be hidden, end quote. This is a primary source that seems to suggest there was a ban to be worked around, and he was trying to convince those in power of the technology's benefits. And for this, I did find other sources mentioning this same primary source, one mentioning that part of the treatise, quote, showed the losses to Islamic learning from the absence of print and the great benefits that printing would bring to Muslims in general and Ottomans in particular, end quote. So I felt comfortable stopping here. I've got at least six sources on the topic and a few more investigating those six. I'm still not certain there was a ban. I think I even lean towards that there wasn't, but it's not clear. To me, this evidence points to some combination of factors, maybe a ban, maybe pressure from those in power, even if not a ban, possibly cultural preferences, limiting the adoption of the printing press. Moreover, the Ottoman Empire was vast, so it's not unlikely to me that there were different situations in different regions. Even the source with the most counterpoints after demonstrating that there were books and presses during the time period in question, which might seem to oppose some of the main point, gives an explanation for why the presses weren't adopted, so it's in agreement there. In my experience, this is how history often works. There aren't clear-cut answers, but it's not as if we're left in the dark. The balance of evidence of these sources certainly tips towards there having been this vast gap, two to three hundred years, in widespread adoption of the printing press between Europe and the Ottoman Empire. While details like why this occurred and the specificity of certain dates he provided during our conversation are well within question, the main thrust of Mark's claims in our episode that the aforementioned gap exists that it's vast, doesn't seem challenged. So I left it in the final version. So that was a rapid attempt at showing what it looks like when I check sources. I don't know, hope it was fun. What did I miss? I'm just a guy and I'm certainly not saying my research is definitive or exhaustive. And what's next? There are plenty of claims from this episode worth doing this with. How elaborate were China's treasure ships? Did they really isolate themselves? How does neuroplasticity work? What was that double slit experiment again? I hope something we're doing sparks something in you. We'll talk soon.